Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Well, if you'll be in our kids' ministry this morning, you can go ahead on to the back. Uh, The rest remain standing, uh, if you would, as we hear from Luke 1. Luke 1, verse 11 through 16 says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And he and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. My name is Eric. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the pastors here at New King, and it's my pleasure to bring you this this first installment in this series on Advent. As Lucius says, we're doing uh, the promises, the promises of Christmas, the promises of Advent. And uh, today we're going to talk about um, Zechariah and and, uh, John the Baptist, his son, and uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 1. It'd be great if you do that. If you don't have a Bible today, raise your hand, and Jane in the back will hand deliver you one. There's one right there. We got one. We got two, three, four. All right. That's the world's record. That's awesome. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to keep that and bring that home with you. We'd love to have you have a Bible at home to read and to study. So here's a funny little story um, before I get going. Um, Something happened in this church exactly two years ago on November 29th, 2020, that was absolutely unforgettable. Do you remember? I gave the first installment of the Advent series two years ago. Nobody remembers except for me. It was so funny because, you know, we have our pastor's meeting and we, we talk through um, the portions we're going to have and sometimes we arm wrestle and fight a little bit over who gets what and I want to preach sad and no, I want to do it. And this one, believe it or not, two years ago, we were looking at characters of Advent and the first was Zachariah and Elizabeth and Aaron looked at me and laughed and said, yeah, they're old people, Eric, you do that one. So I got that one, and here we are two years later, and I'm doing the same portion almost. Uh, I'm excited to do that. A very different sermon this year from two years ago. So let's just bow our heads and pray, and uh, we'll get going with um, the lesson today. Uh, Father God, help me to bring your word 
to the people this morning. Help me to say what you want me to say. Father, I've prepared a message. Father God, feel free to change it. Feel free to adjust it. Father, I am prepared, but I'm also prepared for you to take control. I pray that you will. I pray that your Holy Spirit would take over this service this morning as we look to Luke chapter 1. I ask for your help in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, um, Luke's gospel. Luke starts out, and uh, it's interesting, in the first four verses, he kind of gives an overview of why he writes. And and just notice two things very quickly. He says, uh, um, I've undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So what Dr. Luke does, he was a physician, what he does is he decides through the Holy Spirit, it's time to write this stuff down. And what he did was he went to the eyewitnesses, and he said, tell me what you saw. And Dr. Luke wrote it down. Why? Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That you may be certain, you may be sure that this gospel account is accurate, that you may trust it, that you may believe it. That's how this gospel starts. Eyewitnesses' accounts written down so that 2,000 years later, here we are in South Burlington, Vermont, with the scriptures open, and we can trust them. We can be certain. And then what happens? Um, Dr. Luke, in an interesting twist, in a surprising way, starts out his narrative talking about two couples. There was um, this fellow named Zach, and his wife was named Liz. Remember Zach and Liz, Zachariah and Elizabeth? And then there's Mary and Joe, Mary and Joseph. They come right together. That's how he starts his gospel. Two related families. One family is old. One is young. One is married. One is engaged. One is in the temple, the center of the Jewish world. One is off in some obscure Vermont town like Panton, where I live, which nobody's ever heard of. An angel speaks to each family, promising a son. Both respond with biology. Zachariah says, we're both old, it's too late. And what does Mary respond with? I'm a virgin. How's it going to happen? Biology. Both family stories center on a disgraced woman. Elizabeth is barren. 
a shame and a reproach for both her and her husband. Mary is in a worse state. She's, she's going to be pregnant before she's married, a crime deserving death. She should have been stoned. Shame and reproach are on both these families. Now, no one in their right mind in the first century would begin a historical account in that way. You see, women couldn't even be taken into court as a witness because they were not to be believed. That was the day. Who would do this? It can't be true, can it? It is true. So now we come to the preparation stuff. Now we come to the focus of the message of the promise of preparation through the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. If you notice uh, verse 5 through 7, if you have your Bible open, just follow along. I'm just going to zip through each little section here. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth were barren and they were both advanced in years. So last week, if you remember, if you were here, Ben did this alliteration thing and he thought he was pretty big by doing that. You wait. This first section is the preparation of the parents. The preparation of the parents. Now understand where we are in history. The last Old Testament prophet was Malachi. 400 years before that, God had not spoken to the people in 400 years. They're called the 400 silent years. 16 generations had come and gone, and God was silent. There was no word from the Lord. And so here's this couple. They had been praying for a child. And there's no word from God. And now they're old. The word Zechariah, the name Zechariah means Jehovah has remembered. Now that's interesting. Elizabeth means God is an oath. God is a promise. But what had happened in their lives? Profound sadness. Disappointment. Shame because of no child. Month after month, when she was not pregnant, it was terrible and hard. And God hadn't spoken in 400 years. Yet, yet, in the face of this, they were righteous. They were utterly devoted to God who keeps his promises. So the preparation of the parents. Now we come to, are you ready? Preparation of the priest. Look at verses 10 through, um, 8 through 9. 
Now, while he, Zechariah, was priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So during the first century, there was about 18,000 priests that served the temple, and they were to serve twice a year. And by lot, one was chosen to go in and burn the incense. And it only happened once in the life of a priest. Once you had done it, never do it again. It was a one time. And so by lot, somehow, this man was chosen. Now, you probably wonder how we make decisions here at New King. If you go in the back room, there's a cabinet. In the cabinet, there's some drawers. In the bottom drawer at the very back is a box. In the box is a bag. In the bag are our dice. (laughs) That's how we make decisions. No, that's not how we make decisions. By lot, he was chosen. And he, it said he was of the uh, division of Abijah. There were 24 divisions of priests, and the division of Abijah was of the eighth order. Now, I'm an engineer. I'm a numbers guy. Seven is God's perfect number. Eighth is the new beginning. And it's just interesting to me that it's the eighth order. God is now going to speak. God is now going to say something. Here it begins, the ushering in of the new age through the eighth order of Abijah. After 400 years of silence, God gets back to the promises that he's made. Preparation of the parents, preparation of the priest. Now we have preparation through prayer, right? Look at verse 10 through 13. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled. I love that. I'm troubled. What does that look like? <laughs> right? I troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Preparation through prayer. The people were all outside praying. They were probably going through some of the psalms and praying the psalms out loud. This is what they did. This was their custom. This is what they did when the incense was lighted. And then, it's interesting, the angel shows up and he says, your prayer had been answered. You're going to have a son. Well, how long ago had they been praying that? And when did they stop? We know that they probably stopped because when the word comes from the angel, Zechariah immediately looks at biology and he says, we're too old. They probably had given up, right? Don't you think? They probably gave up. They prayed day after day, week after month, month after month, year after year, no child. And then they're too old. And then they said, oh, Lord, We rest in your decision. We will still serve you. 
will still be devoted to you. And they probably stop praying. And what happens? God says, I heard your prayer. You think about that, my friends. Don't give up. But if you give up, know that God still loves you and he cares for you. And he's heard your prayers. Praise God, yeah? We never know with God, do we, how he might surprise us. We never know. Preparation through prayer. And now we come to verses 14 and 15. Preparation of the prophet, John. So verse 14, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's birth. Joy followed by greatness before the Lord, consecrated. The idea is consecrated. He is set apart. And then it says, no alcohol, but to be filled, to be controlled completely and utterly by the Holy Spirit. Preparation of the prophet. Now we have... The key section that I am going to speak on this morning. All this stuff was just preparation. (laughs) Now we have the preparation of the people, verses 16 and 17. There are five things in these two verses that I want to talk about. The preparation of the people. And the question is, prepared for what? Verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. So think about and visualize what that means. It's a turning towards something. We call that in our vernacular repentance. Repentance is is turning from sin turning from your own way to God. And so John, the Baptist, is going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now, John was a prophet. Jesus says this. John is a prophet. The last prophet was Malachi, And now we have 400 years and we have the prophet John. The work of a prophet is to identify sin in people's life. We think of prophets as predicting the future. That goes with it. But the first thing they do is they call out the hearts of the people and turn them back to God in repentance. And the future part is, if you repent, here's the blessing and glory that's going to follow. If you don't repent, here's the judgment that's going to follow. That's how prophets work. And John was in character with that. He was a prophet just like the Old Testament prophets. Now verse 17, the very first part. He will go before him in the spirit 
and power of Elijah. So the first part, he is going to go before him. Who is him? Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Messiah. He is going to be the forerunner. He is going to be the one during the preparation for the people so that when the Messiah comes, they're ready for him. That's his job. That's his role. That's what God called him to do. That's what God set him apart for. That's why he was born. Right? You're going to be the forerunner. And what will that look like? In the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, I love Elijah. Elijah, there's two things about Elijah that you should know. He was a brash, in-your-face preacher. Absolutely in your face. One of my favorite stories is when he is up and he's confronting the other prophets of Baal. And they go through this whole thing and the fire doesn't light on the Baal prophets. So Elijah comes up with this whole bunch of things. So where's your prophets? At one point he says, what are they, in the bathroom? He actually says that. Go back to Kings and you'll see it. What are they, in the bathroom? What a guy. Who would say that? Elijah. Brash, in-your-face guy. But he also had a softer side. Yeah, he had his doubts. Remember Jezebel? He was scared of Jezebel, and he ran off into the wilderness, and he wanted to lay down and die. Then the Spirit of the Lord through an angel comes and encourages him. Now, what about John the Baptist? Exactly the same. Exactly the same. Isn't that amazing? Exactly the same. Tell me. Exactly the same. Why do you say that? The first words, the first recorded words out of John's mouth was this. You brood of vipers. Is that brash or is that not brash? But then you remember, poor John goes to prison. And he's basically on death row. And he gets a little discouraged. And... uh, He sends some of his friends to Jesus to say, are you the one or should we look for another? So he had his doubts as well. Exactly the same. The spirit and the power of Elijah to a T. It's as if God wrote this book, huh? Isn't that something? Spirit and power of Elijah. And then middle of verse 17 to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Man, I really wondered what that meant. I spent a lot of time thinking through what that means, turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. Why this particular thing? Why didn't he say turn the hearts to the Messiah? That seems like a better fit, but it's not that. The relationship, don't miss this, the relationship of a father to a son is the most fundamental relationship in the culture of the day. It is absolutely crucial to everything. Think of the parables Jesus told over and over and over. A father had two sons. It's all about that relationship. 
Think about how Jesus talked about his relationship with the Father. It is fundamental to who the people were. And it talks about a heart relationship. Turn the hearts. The heart relationship between sons and fathers is indicative of all other relationships. It sums everything up. If that's right, everything else falls into place because it's so crucial to the culture and understanding of who they were as a people. You had to have that relationship right. If that relationship was not right, everything was wrong. And so John is going to do that. He's going he's to come in, and there's going to be a restoration of the heart relationship. There's going to be family repentance. And then, in verse 17 again, the disobedient, so he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and then the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. This is moral repentance based upon the heart repentance. Now you're going to act out what you're, what's in your heart now. You've repented in your heart and your conduct is going to follow. And then the last thing at the end of verse 17, to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. John's ministry is a ministry of preparation. Prepared for what? For the Lord, for the Messiah, for the Christ, for the Savior of the people, for the King of kings to return, to come. That is what John's ministry was about. Five things. As a prophet, to turn the children of Israel back to the Lord their God. As the forerunner, he is to go in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare them by a restoration of the heart relationship, which leads to proper conduct, a moral repentance. And finally, John will make them ready for the Lord their God, a people prepared for Jesus. So how did this play out? These five things. How did it work out? If you have your Bible, and I trust you do, turn over to chapter 3. I just want to quickly mention that all these five things came to be exactly as predicted, in order. I had never seen that before. So if you look at Luke chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3, what Luke does, if you notice, there's a whole bunch of leaders named. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate was the governor, Herod was Tetrarch, his brother Philip. Why all that? I mean, we just read over that. We don't have time for that, all these names. We don't even know who they are. Why does he do that? What is the point? This is a historical footnote. This is how they did it back then. This is to show that it was true and accurate and historic. He names all these people, so there's no question about who was there who. So the, the, the mayor of, of, of Burlington was, what's his name? Moreau, yeah, yeah. Moreau, the governor is Scott. The president is 
Biden, right? That's what he does. He goes through and he names all these people to show that this is captured in history. It is reliable. It is true. It is accurate. And it is trustworthy. That's why he does all that. This is not just to fill up space on a page. And then he says, uh, down at the end of verse 2, the word of the God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So now we have the prophet getting the word from God, and he begins to speak. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The very first thing that John was prophesied to do was to get the people to turn and repent. And that's the first thing he does, as recorded here. The next thing that happens is in verses 4 through 6. As it is written in the words of the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, and now there's a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become leveled out, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. A quote from Isaiah the prophet. So, what has this got to do with the spirit and power of Elijah? Well, this phrase, this quote from Isaiah 40 gets picked up in the book of Malachi, the very last prophet of the Old Testament. Remember him? Malachi chapter 3 says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Malachi 4 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. It all fits. It's all tied together. It's all connected. It is John the Baptist coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And he is to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, when you hear the word way, you probably aren't quite sure what it means. It means a highway. It means a road. It means a clear path from where you are to another place. And all the obstacles are going to be removed. The speed bumps are gone. The curves are gone. The up and down is gone. The potholes are gone. All, yeah, we need that here, right? All impediments are there so you can clearly, at full speed, drive straight to your destination. There's no radar. I don't think it said that there, but there's no radar traps. (laughs) That is what John the Baptist is going to do. He is going to remove all impediments that will hinder so that people will have access to the salvation of God. And now in verses 7 through 9, this is a little weak, I've got to tell you, but he does start talking about um, children and fathers. Verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, there it is, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones 
uh, children for Abraham. Remember there was that part about turning the hearts to the fathers. and, the, and the, Yeah, remember all that? Fathers are mentioned. So what John the Baptist is saying is we don't go and we put everything in to the patriarchs of old. We don't say, hey, we're set. We have Abraham as our father. That's not what that's getting at. So don't trust in your past. Don't go back to that, is what he's saying here. And then uh, the crowds respond. Look at verse 10. The crowds asked him, what shall we do? He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever who has food is to do likewise. Now we're seeing the wisdom of God, the moral repentance, the, the conduct What do we do? We've turned our hearts now. What do we do with it? You act it out. You live it out. And he gives three examples. The normal person. Share. Be generous. You got two coats? Give one to somebody. You got some extra food? Share it. And then then, uh, tax collectors come. What do we do? (laughs) Don't be corrupt. Collect no more than you are authorized. Army men come up. Soldiers. What do we do, they say? Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Accusation. Be content with your wages. Practical, moral change exhibited in conduct. Your heart is changed, now your actions change. Your conduct changes. This is what you do. It's called wisdom. The wisdom of Scripture. Okay, moving along. We're almost to the end here. And then verse 15. All these things have happened right in order. Verse 15. The last one was the people need to be prepared. Verse 15. As the people were in expectation. There it is. And all were questioning in their hearts about John. Oh, is he, maybe he's the Christ. Maybe he's the anointed one to come. Maybe he's the Messiah. They weren't quite sure, but John tells them exactly what the situation is. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I am just pointing to someone infinitely greater than myself. I am preparing you. I am pointing. There's one coming. And what is he going to do? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His wind-winning fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations... He preached good news, the gospel to the people. John says, he must increase, I must decrease. John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So two conclusions. Walked you through these scriptures, two conclusions. 
Number one. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. We have gone back to Malachi 400 years before. We have gone back to to, uh, Isaiah chapter 40. We have gone back to Isaiah, not Isaiah, to Elijah in 1 Kings. You see, this one to come, this promised one, it was not by accident. It was not a second choice. It was predicted and promised throughout the whole Old Testament, not for 400 years, but for thousands of years. Step by step, piece by piece, the prophecies were laid down. The promises were made. And they all come to fruition in the person of Jesus. We could, we could, thank you, we could go back to 2 Samuel 9, where King David says, Oh God, I'm living in a palace and you're living in an old house of sticks. I'm going to build you a house. And God says to David, no, 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 no. I'm going to build you a house. I am going to build you a dynasty. I am going to make a king come out of you who will reign forever. And the promise of a king is made to David. We could go back to to Exodus chapter 12, where the people have been in bondage and slavery to Pharaoh. They cry out, and God says, I hear you. I will rescue you. And a certain night, the destroyer is going to come through, and he's going to come to every house, and he's going to take the firstborn son. But you need to take a lamb, and you need to slaughter the lamb, and you need to take the blood, and you need to put it on the lintel and the doorpost, and when I come through, when I see the blood... Of the Lamb, I will pass over you. And death will not come to your house, but life will come. How long ago was that? Who remembers? Who was there? Anybody here? Genesis 37 talks about a man named Joseph. The dreamer of dreams. You ever read about him in chapter 37? He dreamed that the heavens, the sun and the moon and the stars would bow down before him and his brothers hated him. And they cast him into a pit. And in the pit was no water. And they sell him into slavery. And he's raised up out of prison to become the savior of his people. That's a promise. There will be a Savior that comes. I could go on. Genesis 22. Abraham says, God says to Abraham, take your son, the son whom you love, your son Isaac, take him to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. And Abraham takes him and he raises a knife and an angel stops him and says, no, no, there's a ram caught in the thicket. Sacrifice the lamb. Instead of your son. And it goes back beyond that too. Further and further and further. Shall I go to the prophets? 
Isaiah chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah chapter 9. For us a child was born. To us a son given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Prince of peace. Or to the very last words of Malachi in chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God keeps his promises from Genesis to Malachi, from Matthew to Revelation. He is faithful and he keeps his promises. Second point. This was Jesus' first coming. He's coming again. And the New Testament teaches that when Jesus comes, he will come back unexpected. He will take us by surprise, like a thief in the night. And Matthew 24 teaches, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And then the parables of Matthew 25 illustrate this over and over and over again. You don't know when. Be ready. Be prepared. Are you prepared for Jesus to come back? Are you ready? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Have you believed the gospel? If you haven't, what are the impediments that are holding you back? What is it that's keeping you from putting your faith and trust in Jesus? There's emotional obstacles that we must contend with. Sometimes it's past trauma. Sometimes it's current pain that keep us from belief. Sometimes we have things in our life and we say, God, if you're God, I can't believe in you because of what's happening to me. I want you to look at Zechariah and Elizabeth. They went through a time of incredible trial, yet they believed. And I don't know if they were still living, but their son died a horrible, brutal, violent death. Maybe they saw it, maybe they didn't. Some people say, I emotionally, I'm just not there. I, I hear the gospel, I get it, but I just can't, I don't, I don't feel it. Is that an obstacle for you? Read the gospel of Luke. Our faith is not based upon our feeling, but based upon fact. 
Our God works in history. And we are to use that history to give us the faith that we need to believe. Maybe, maybe it's a behavioral obstacle. There's several. Some people say, well, I'm not all that bad. I'm no different than anyone else, and they don't see their need for a Savior. Some people say, I am bad. <laughs> In fact, I'm really bad. How could God ever, ever, ever forgive me? Some people say, well, I know that if I become a Christian, God is going to make demands upon me. My, my heart will be changed. I will be transformed. And then I'm called to conduct. I'm called to a holy life. And I don't want anybody giving me rules and regulations. I'm not ready for that. I want to do what I want to do. Is that your stumbling block? Is that your impediment that's keeping you from believing in Jesus? I could give you 50 examples. I won't bore you with it. Let me just tell you the principle. When God takes something away, when God says, don't do this, he replaces it with something better. Remember? Remember John the Baptist? No alcohol, no strong drink, no wine, no whiskey, no, no alcoholic cider, you know. He, are you going to be filled with the Holy Spirit? When God takes something away, he fills us with something better. If that's your impediment, talk to us about that. We can show you a better way. God will give you himself, which is far better. And there are cultural obstacles. Some of them are political in nature. We think, oh, I don't want to be a Christian because of that particular party or that particular belief. I've had people say that to me again and again and again. Maybe it's a family value. Maybe you grew up in a very liberal home. And you, the idea of, of being a conservative Christian, you can't even imagine it. And maybe that's holding you back. Maybe it's a religious upbringing. Maybe you were brought up in an, in an atheistic home. And the idea of a God, you can't even imagine. How can you ever know? Maybe it's an ethnic reason. Maybe, maybe your family culture is very different and you were brought up in another faith and you can't imagine following this man, Jesus. Is that you? Two things, and we're going to close. Consider Jesus. Look to the scriptures. Start reading Luke's gospel. Go through it chapter by chapter by chapter, section by section. Make a little note. Write down who this man says he is. And I promise you, the road will become smoother. The impediments will be removed as you come face to face with the Messiah. Secondly, all these things in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. He was the lamb that was slain. When Abraham looked and there was a, a ram caught in the thicket, 
that points to Jesus. Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son, but God did. You see, we have so much value in his, side, in his eyes that he was willing to offer his son so that he might have a relationship with you. He longs for you. He wants you. He seeks you. He desires you as a person. So much so that he gave his son. That's the gospel. Put your faith in that and believe the scriptures. If you have questions, if these impediments are getting you down, talk to one of us. We would be thrilled to help you with that. And be prepared for Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the prophets. We thank you for all the books of the Old Testament, all the scenes, all the examples that all point forward to your son Jesus coming into this world to suffer and die for sins. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict each of us to be prepared for Jesus. Amen.